Welcome to Medicus Podcast, any and all things related to medicine. Today, we have a non-traditional student who obtained his law degree, master's in business administration degree, and paramedic certification before attending medical school. My co-host Dave and I will be talking to him about his transition, his life, and wisdom he gained throughout his journey. Enjoy. All right, everyone, uh, welcome to Medicus Podcast, all things related to healthcare. Today we have a special guest, uh, Rob Kenning. He has a law degree and he decided to pursue a long career in medicine, and we just get to hear his story. Dave is here too. Um, it is Dave here. And uh, he is co hosting. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate you having me here today. Yeah. I remember when I was applying to medical school, I listened to this podcast, particularly the admissions episode, oh. and it really helped me in drafting my personal statement and application. So I'm happy to be able to give back and be here today. Wow, great, thank you. Do you wanna tell us more about yourself and you know how you got here? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it took quite the long and winding road to get here. I'm 33 years old, mm. and I've been working on this transition for about the last seven years. Wow, that's, that's a big transition. So how long have you practiced or like been involved in law and anything like law related? Sure, I worked at a law firm in Washington, D.C. for the last five years. I was in the healthcare and life sciences practice group mm. doing mostly corporate and transactional measures involving healthcare and life sciences companies. Wow. That's, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, so did you originally kind of see yourself going into law long-term then? I mean, I, I guess you went for the JD, so can you tell us more about what that path looked like for you? Yeah, sure. So much like most college students, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, mm. but I went to an event at night where this J Army JAG attorney came in and spoke about his experience uh, in going to Iraq in 2003 mm -hmm. and uh, being an attorney embedded with the military oh. and doing a lot of problem solving and okay. talked about trying to figure out who was a terrorist, who was just a civilian, who was in the Iraqi army because many of the um, soldiers did, just took off their uniforms, threw down their weapons mm -hmm. and started surrendering a mass with the civilians. And so that didn't really comply with the Geneva Convention that requires certain attributes to make you a sol soldier and then consequently a POW. So they mm -hmm. were kind of on the fly deciding how to differentiate these people and they actually figured out where if you had a good job before the war, mm -hmm. you were most likely to be part of the Ba'ath Party and then somebody of substance in the military. So they sent you down door number one and everybody oh. else did that door number two. Oh. And that really kind of spoke to me as in a way to get a lot of responsibility quickly and um, solve problems. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I better take the LSAT. And um, <laughs> I took the LSAT, but listening to some of my mentors, they said, well, why don't you kind of get a little experience in law before you jump in and go straight to law school? So mm -hmm. I was able to get a job as a paralegal at a law firm in New York for three oh, years before wow. going to law school. Okay. And you, you were always like interested in law, right? Ever since like you were young? 
Not really. Uh, I grew up in an area of Connecticut where most people's parents worked in New York City and um, worked in finance or insurance or were lawyers. And so those were kind of the different career paths that I was considering. I was a Spanish major in college, so uh, there wasn't a whole lot of direct jobs after that. Uh, (laughs) And so... uh, was able to get a law a job at a law firm in New York, and uh, I worked in their corporate department, specifically in the financial institutions group. Mm. And that was during 2008 when everybody thought the world was ending. Yeah. 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 And so I was just really fort- lucky to have a job. Right. A lot of my peers didn't who were graduating that year. Yeah. And but it was a, it was a really great time. It was exciting. Mm. Um, we were helping a lot of different companies become banks so they could ask, access the federal discount window. Mm. And it was just a lot of creative, exciting lawyering. Uh, I was happy for the overtime. And <laughs> it was a really great experience. And I think most importantly there, I, I met a lot of really great people. Mm-hmm. And so those people that I met heavily encouraged me to continue my studies and go back to law school because you can't go from being a paralegal to an attorney. And right, uh, right. I thought that made sense. And so I um, I applied to a bunch of different law schools and was very fortunate to get into the University of Connecticut, which mm-hmm. is where I was living and get mm-hmm. in-state tuition and, yeah. and start school there. So, I mean, my rudimentary understanding of um, law school is that a lot of people kind of similar to medical school, they select kind of a, a particular kind of specialty or area that they kind of want to s- practice law, or is that after you, fin- you finish school? I think that's, that's mostly after. Mm-hmm. I, I think that at least the way that my law school was set up, it was very litigation focused, mm-hmm. which is more of like the court type of law mm-hmm. uh, and less and more on writing legal memos and a lot of legal research. Mm-hmm. And the actual law that I ended up practicing was nothing like that. Uh, it was corporate <laughs> transactional law where uh, it was very much like on the job training when I finally started practicing. Okay. I mean, I, I also saw on your, um, you know, you sent us your, your extensive CV, which is very, uh, very impressive. Um, yeah, like one of the, um, it looked like you had some recognition or, or some experience within like public health law as well. Um, was that something you explored during that time? So I did, was allowed to take some classes at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and School of Public Health because okay. every, every law student at UConn has the ability to take, I think it's between two and four classes at the other graduate schools. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of jumped on that to take some public health law classes because I was starting to get more and more interested in health law. This was in 2010, Mm -hmm. the ACA had passed. Uh, There were a lot of changes going on in the healthcare industry and it was the hot topic. And uh, I I just found, you know, the healthcare is pervasive. Everybody's got a story about the healthcare system. And so, and I just found it really interesting in the way that it affects people's lives and is in every, embedded in all aspects of our lives. So I started getting more and more interested in it. You know, I've, I've always kind of had a medical thing going on in yeah. the background. So when I was in high school, when I was 16, I became an EMT. Oh, nice. And I started volunteering in my local high school ambulance service. Wow. And um, when I was in college, I was on our campus collegiate EMS organization. 
and when I was working as a paralegal, I continued to um, volunteer in the town next door where I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of always, every Sunday, I would go and volunteer with the, the ambulance. Mm -hmm. And I after I was an EMT, then I became an advanced EMT mm -hmm. uh, and was kind of doing that. So I always really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had, I had trouble, I looked around at my peers on the ambulance and I saw how they were struggling to make a career out of EMS. Mm, right. And so at that time, it wasn't fact, super factoring into my decision making. Mm -hmm. But when I was in law school, I actually took a paramedic course at a local community college in Hartford. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so during my second year of law school, I was going to paramedic class during the day and doing my law classes at night. Mm -hmm. And so that was really what kind of opened up my eyes to the healthcare system because we had to do several hundred hours shadowing mm -hmm. in the hospital in the different departments. So we were trauma, OBGYN, pediatrics, cardiology, yeah. the ED. And that experience opened up my eyes to that house of medicine mm -hmm. and just saw how amazing it was to have that direct impact on people's lives and also their extended families and I think going back, hearkening back to that problem solving that I saw that JAG attorney or heard, yeah. heard about that JAG attorney yeah. doing, that I saw a lot of that in the healthcare system, particularly in the ED where the emergency room physicians trying to can most of the time fix the problem that's right in front of them. Mm -hmm. They have all these resources to bring to bear to right. you know, start at least start the process of making it better. Mm -hmm. And so that really attracted me to it. And I um, you know, really enjoyed my time on the ambulance after I finished my paramedic program. I started working full-time hours as a paramedic in Bridgeport, Connecticut, mm. and just saw call after call after call and found a lot of value in every single one of them. And that was really kind of the, the light bulb moment for me mm. when it was like, this is really what I want to do as a mm. career. But I had, uh, at that time, just about finished law school. <laughs> so uh, it was something that I was really considering, and it, it then I started really looking seriously into to see if it would even be possible mm -hmm. at that stage in my life to kind of take a hard right turn mm -hmm. and pursue becoming a physician. Okay. And so you had you always had this parallel desire to work in healthcare and I mean you're like a paramedic student by day and law student by night and um and eventually it intersected and after you graduated law school and when you wanted to pursue being a physician, did you ever feel like all the time and all the money that you spent was a little bit wasted? Not at all. I mean, I, I, if I would definitely, if I could do it all again, mm -hmm. I would go directly to medical school after college. <laughs> <laughs> definitely would be a lot easier. Uh, but I don't regret going to law school at all. I think it was a really, really great training opportunity. I met some fabulous people. I worked at a phenomenal law firm where I got some great experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm very happy with decisions, you know, how things have worked out. Mm -hmm. uh, if I could go back and do it again, definitely would, would make some <laughs> few tweaks along the way. <laughs> so do you see, uh, I guess, your, your particular, you know, paths intersecting again between like law and medicine in the future? Um, or are you just kind of like trying to survive medical school right now? Definitely. Uh, so. The, a lot of people have asked me, mm. well, are you going to become a hospital administrator? Do you mm. see yourself as the president of the hospital, CEO, something like that? And I think I could have pursued a hospital administration career without becoming a clinician. Right. right. So the, you know, the reason that I'm 
in medical school is because I actually want to take care of sick people. Mm-hmm. And so at least in the near and middle term, what I would like to do is, you know, be involved in the direct care of patients. Mm-hmm. Now, I think long term, there's definitely going to be a, I'd like to take my various background and bring it with, bring those experiences and that knowledge and those capabilities with me and kind of get that Venn diagram role that brings together, overlaps my clinical experience and my legal background yeah. to make changes. Particularly what I'm interested in is uh, pre-hospital care and emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to use the ambulance and the um, pre-hospital people as an extension of the emergency department. So break mm-hmm. down the walls between those two groups. And I think in d- doing that, it's gonna require a lot of regulatory, legal, and administrative changes based on uh, scopes of practice, mm-hmm. scope practice laws, uh, how healthcare services are reimbursed, mm-hmm. and um, just a number of other factors that are, I think will allow me to draw from my legal background. Absolutely. And yeah, it sounds like it, it is a very, I mean, you bring like a very unique set of skills in terms of kind of like expertise to create a, you know, a modeling for that, for that kind of uh, policy. So that, that, that's really cool. I was also wondering, like, do you have any any other, like, transferable skills that you kind of obtain from law school that you kind of use it through your, like, paramedic school or even applying to medical school? Because I know you said you were a Spanish major, right? So you had to take all the science courses, I'm guessing, after law school, right? Yeah, that, that's right, John. I did uh, postgraduate classes at, at George Washington University in mm-hmm. D.C., uh, for about four and a half years in order to get all mm. of the, the nine classes that I needed to apply. Right, for the requirement? Yes. And, how, and how did that feel? I mean, were you, did it feel okay because you kept continuing with classes and education, or did you feel a little weird? Well, it was definitely challenging being in organic chemistry class with 19-year-olds mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. and uh, always being kind of like the oldest person in the room. Mm-hmm. It was definitely challenging balancing a full-time job with going to a four-hour lab uh, that you know would be from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and trying to carve out time to get to that uh, while balancing everything else. So you were practicing law during that time when when you were you were doing that postback program. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow that's that's a lot of hours in the day. Yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate that my job kind of allowed me to, uh, well, it's a job that required you to be on 24 hours, mm-hmm. right. but as a result, the, there was some flexibility on when you worked. So as long mm-hmm. as you worked your, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours that day, mm-hmm. it could be from noon to mm-hmm. midnight. It didn't have to necessarily be 9 to 5. In fact, I don't think I would be able to have gone back and done school mm-hmm. if I hadn't been working at that job because mm-hmm. it gave me that kind of flexibility to work from anywhere where I had an internet connection. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's very nice. And when you were taking all these classes, you were talking about how like there were a lot of 19-year-olds. Like, Did you have a little bit trouble of maybe, did you feel a little out of place trying to take classes with them? I think the hardest part was just learning how to be a science student Oh, okay. That's and so, you know, I had taken a liberal arts education, which right. was a lot more reading short uh, paperbacks and mm-hmm. writing essays right. to and to move into an environment where you're taking concrete knowledge-based tests mm-hmm. to learn how to study those. I mean, just coming to medical school, I've definitely felt like I've leaned on a lot of my younger colleagues to to say, okay, how do you how do you study in 
2019 because mm -hmm. when I started college in 2004, mm -hmm. it was a very indifferent environment where you bought all the textbooks and mm -hmm. you had uh, lined paper that you took notes on mm -hmm. and you made flashcards by hand. And right, right. you know now we're much more focused on using electronic textbooks mm -hmm. and using electronic flashcards and so just learning from my peers on how to study it, how to be a science student was I think the hardest mm -hmm. change. And so I think a lot of a lot of the learning techniques you do because you're kind of around your peers all the time studying and somebody shares with you like a, a good way of, of learning mm -hmm. something or the, a, a useful resource. And mm -hmm. when you're a non-traditional student, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're trying to race home to let your dog out or make dinner mm -hmm. or, you know, you're not getting those same kind of informal connections. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was kind of hard as, um, you know, a, a non-degree older student mm. doing that kind of work. Do you feel like those, um, that kind of like transition experience has kind of um, mirrored in some ways, like what, what you're going through now, like uh, entering medical school, or do you feel like it's, it's kind of smoother? Because I know, I know like, you know, at like, a, I'm not, you know, as, I guess if there's like a spectrum of non-traditional, like I'm not as non-traditional <laughs> as you maybe, but like, you know, I, I took several years off as well and I kind of had a meandering path to medicine, but uh, I know it can be, you know, a bit weird sometimes, like navigating like a lot of different age groups, a lot of different kind of, um, you know, folks from, you know, coming from everywhere and like having a lot of different, you know, perspectives on stuff it, within medical school as a cohort, like, do you feel like how do you feel like your experiences have kind of in influenced your experience in medical school so far? Well, one thing I found about medical school is that almost all the students here are incredibly mature and yeah. motivated. <laughs> yeah. So it's very, it's very <laughs> easy to relate, regard, even if there is an age difference. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that comes up. Um, maybe you see it a little bit more mm -hmm. in like the informal out-of-class settings where <laughs> you know, you're reaching for a can of White Claw versus a glass of wine. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, in the classroom, it, like I feel like the age is, kind of goes out the window and okay. everybody is in the same situation working towards the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing I can think of is, you know, somebody who's already pursued a graduate degree, yeah. you know, not living and dying on every test, <laughs> <laughs> obviously trying to do the best I can, right. but you know, their life will goes life goes on right. and yeah. you know, you're going to have bad days, you're going to have great days, mm -hmm. like kind of just having a broader scope of perspective. It sounds like for sure. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, and as like a non-traditional student, when you're, I guess, applying to medical school, how did that go? Like how, what was the process like? Also, did you have any advisors at George Washington university? So I did take advantage, I did have access to the undergraduate advising program, mm -hmm. and I took advantage of that to meet with the advisors. I think they had some, some useful things um, to help with, with uh, structuring their resume, helping to emphasize things, and also where to go for resources. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is a little bit like you're on your own because um, mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out how to tell your story, mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily the same narrative that a lot of the students are mm -hmm. saying. So I, I did think that the the application process is very much designed for the either in college in college applicant or the one who's one to two years out. And mm -hmm. Dave, you can probably speak to that from your experience. Absolutely. I mean, like, uh, like a lot of committee letters, right, are a big thing with um, with applications and like, 
I mean, if you didn't go to undergraduate at your institution right, right. or like if you just didn't get to know them, like, yeah, no, there's no, there's really no committee that can write a letter for you in that particular, uh, you know, for that particular thing. Yeah, it was definitely challenging because a lot of schools will require multiple science faculty. Mm, yeah. And, uh, you know, for me at least, I only had one science teacher that I had more than once, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I wasn't a physical chemistry major that right. could go and have uh, a chemistry teacher three times. Right. And I was taking all the introductory courses, mm-hmm. so there's could be several hundred people in a biology class. It's hard mm-hmm. to really to get to know that professor. I was lucky that I took two summer school courses. Mm-hmm. That's when I took organic chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I had the same professor for each one of those. That's and good. so she was willing to write me a letter of recommendation, which was really helpful to get that science requirement. Yeah. And um, you know, really had to look t- at the people who in my life who I thought would be high quality recommenders. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in, I had a graduate school professor mm-hmm. write a letter for me, mm-hmm. which I thought was helpful because it showed an ability to work at a graduate level course Mm. and do well. Uh, I had a physician write a letter who I had spent a lot of time with. Um, So I had tried to to weave people, I had a, uh, so I just tried to weave people who were in my life who could speak to different areas Mm -hmm. of my background. Yeah. um, Because there's, it's kind of hard to, that I found the biggest struggle with application is to to tell your story in Mm -hmm. a way that makes sense that the, the words kind of come off the page and become right. an image that the the reviewers can understand. Yeah. And and then I did find that in the in the um, interviews, a lot of times I would be asked, "So, what kind of research experience did you have?" Mm. And say, you know, none. So none <laughs> in science, but you know, as part of the uh, medical school or as part of the uh, my law training, we had done you know quite a bit of research preparation right. and training. And uh, one class I had actually taken was a forensic law course. And so there was a paper requirement for that course and wrote this long paper on arson investigations, which was heavily focused on the scientific method uh, rather than just using folklore and myth to base decisions, but instead actually using studies that ATF and other organizations had conducted to show what arson versus, you know, accidental fires look like. It's really interesting. Um, Did... Uh, did you feel like the the interviewers kind of like um, were able to uh, connect with that then, uh, or, or did did it kind of was there like a yeah? So I think that uh, the almost the structure of the interview mm-hmm. made a big difference on I felt like the success of the interview. Mm-hmm. So the interviews that I went in that were a closed file, so mm-hmm. the interviewer didn't have any idea who you were, mm-hmm. were much harder because I almost felt like I had to take half of the session to just explain who I was right. and my story. Mm-hmm. The ones that had an open file, mm-hmm. I thought went a lot better because they already kind of had questions and kind of had a sense about who you were. Yeah. Um, so it was easier to kind of explain who I was. I think the the general feedback is was that like you're a you know very mature applicant. Mm-hmm. You seem to be making mm-hmm. a decision that's well informed. Mm-hmm. But I do think there was a bit of a, an initial difficulty with the interviewers because they're they can't ask the same questions that they're asking the 22 year old applicant. Right. Right. Um, so they're 
it's not as not as kind of like a comfortable right beginning position. just kind of like breaks the breaks the mold or, or what they're kind of accustomed to at that point mm-hmm. um you mentioned uh you know listening to the interview with dean nakai right like um was there anything particular that um stood out to you you know like that that was helpful within within that discussion or like what what kinds of things helped you kind of navigate that process I am, I'm trying to think uh, specifically, I just remember like the way that she describes, you know, when you finally get in and, mm-hmm. and that there's, you know, there's thousands of people mm-hmm. fighting for a spot mm-hmm. and to, to just always remember that any number of people who didn't make it in and they would have killed to be in, <laughs> in your position. So on all those hard days where you're like, why am I doing this? Right, you know, yeah. remember that and yeah. kind of keep that that healthy perspective and be very grateful that you're here and, you know, take advantage of everything that the schools have to offer because it's a, you know, medical school is a huge privilege. So is there any like really hard interview question that you encounter, like something that you just caught you off guard or you were like, I don't know how to answer that. Cause I know a lot of, a lot of interviews that I went to, they asked why this school or like, you know, what do you think about diversity or, I mean, those are general questions, right? I mean, for you, because you're such a non-traditional, unique applicant, like, is there anything that someone else asked? You know, I definitely got the standard questions of why medicine and why this school and why this area of the country that Mm -hmm. I felt like kept coming up over and again. But I think the hardest question for me that I got was, you know, are you just, you know, flaking on law? Are you, are you... (laughs) You know, you've already done this, and now you're just doing the next thing because right. you just want to be in school. And um, that <laughs> love school, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I think that was that was a hard one um, to hear because I know mm-hmm. that this is a decision that was not made lightly. That right. you know, spent years and years and years making, and that uh, that I know that I'm going to be alive and working right now for longer than I've. I, you know, be working as a physician for mm-hmm. after I finish my all my training for longer than I've even been alive. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'd rather be doing the thing that I know and, and love doing um, than be stuck for a job for the next forty years that I don't absolutely love. I mean, I love I really enjoyed being a lawyer, mm-hmm. but I didn't love it in the same way that I I love medicine. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I used to get up and do my paramedic shifts, I used to l- love going to work. I like, couldn't wait to get to work and I would really enjoy the way I felt coming home at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And that's how I still feel now when I'm coming to school and going to shadow in the hospital and yeah. you know just it's a phenomenal feeling and I feel very lucky to be able to, you know, course change. I know that and not everybody can do that, yeah. but you know, I've had a lot of support from my wife and friends and family to be able to do that, so um, I'm lucky in that way. That's really wonderful. Um, how's that? Um, I mean, you mentioned your wife. Like, so how how's that kind of transition been for you know you and your kind of like loved ones and and your um, I guess like your friends and family? It sounds like you've had to move around a lot too. So, could you talk about that you know process a bit? Sure. So I you know I when I was applying, uh, my wife also works in healthcare, doing healthcare mm-hmm. policy work, and nice. you know she's also an attorney. And we met in law school, and so we kind of really had to tackle. The whole process together, mm-hmm. and so we, we looked at the map, and we were trying to figure out, okay, 
these are places where your off your current company has an mm -hmm. office or where you can get uh, a job. So you know, we were limited geographically mm -hmm. to where we could go um, when we were deciding which school to pick. You know, we were thinking about financial options mm -hmm. and long-term plans. You know, where could we possibly you know want to continue a life together? Mm -hmm. um, which is the best choice for that? So it's it took a lot of joint decision making to ultimately get to where we are yeah. here. Um, you know, you don't have the same flexibility where you can just send, you know, 40 applications right. out to all over the country. <laughs> it's like, I'll go wherever, yeah. <laughs> and, well, you know, whoever accepts me. <laughs> and that's still in the back of my mind, too, for mm -hmm. the next step when, right, you know, ultimately right. when it comes to residency and mm -hmm. things like that, because we're going to be in the exact same, have the exact same, you know, considerations, limitations mm -hmm. when that comes around as well. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a lot of moving parts to kind of negotiate, it sounds like. Yeah. And she was lucky that uh, her work allowed her to work remotely. Yeah, so. really nice. Um, have you, how have you guys been, do you feel like you all have been settling in pretty well in, in the Chicagoland area now? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're coming from D.C., yeah. and so we found a neighborhood that mm -hmm. was tree-lined streets and low-rise apartment buildings yeah. and uh, pretty close to the downtown. So there's a lot of different options, very similar to where we were. So we're pretty happy with that. Well, being being a non-traditional applicant, you mentioned earlier that you were 33. Yeah. And I mean, kind of looking ahead, is there any specialties that you don't want to do by any chance? What I don't want to do, I mean, what I'm really looking for, and I'm, you know, I came into school thinking uh, emergency medicine, and mm -hmm. I'm still gravitating towards that. Uh, I definitely want to use this time to kind of see other things so mm -hmm. that I can, I've always felt like you, know, you want to figure out what you like, but more importantly, what you don't like, and that mm -hmm. helps you make yeah. decisions. Uh, so I've been trying to shadow and meet with physicians and other specialties just to get their input, but I'm still you know, heavily leaning towards emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. I like emergency medicine uh, for a couple of different reasons. Mm -hmm. It's you know, the, f the philosophy of anyone, anytime, mm -hmm. uh, anything mm -hmm. really appeals to me because you're kind of a jack of all trades, but mm -hmm. a specialist in resuscitation and a diagnostic diagnostician. Mm -hmm. So I like that. I like that in emergency medicine, there's a mix of procedural mm -hmm. work and also medicine thinking aspect that I like kind of the mindset where you're figuring out what could kill you first and then working back from there. Um, so I'm really, and I like the thought of, as I mentioned before, uh, working with the outside providers, the people in the community to bring the services of the ED to people where they are in their homes um, and really using the ambulance as an extension of the emergency room yeah. through uh, telehealth and other resources. Absolutely. Um, uh, <clears throat> I know we've been focusing a lot on like, you know, the, um, your, your background within laws and, and then going into healthcare, but I, I, it sounds like the, your EMS training has been very meaningful to you as well. Do you have any like particular, you know, uh, experiences or moments within, you know, when you were, you know, an ambulance driver or like things that you learned through that experience um, that, that stand out to you now? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the biggest thing is just being able to talk to people mm -hmm. and you learn really fast how to, um, you know, meet somebody because in EMS, you know, whether it's 3 p.m. or 3 a.m., mm -hmm. somebody calls 911 yeah. and they're opening the door of their home you know, whether it's, 
you know, the public housing project or the $5 million house, mm. like, and they're expecting you to come in mm. and uh, take care of their loved one. Yeah. And really, you know, people call 911 because whatever is going on in their life is outside of their ability to handle on their own. Mm. And so they're looking for somebody to come in and be the calm center of the universe to mm. start the process of restoring order to things. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I had a, a lot of calls where you're just trying to figure out what hat you need to be that day, the therapist, the social worker, the mm -hmm. clinician. And so there's, as, a, as an EMS provider, you, you never really know mm -hmm. that. Um, but I think, you know, as I matured through my career in EMS, you know, I've, let's see, I think my first ambulance call was about 19 years ago. Wow. So I was an EMT for 11 years before I became a paramedic, and I've been wow. paramedic like the last six years. Mm -hmm. And initially I was, uh, you know, scared on every call because I was 16 years old and I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> and I was just hoping that there was enough resources in place to not let me fail. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what I found out is there is, like, there's always somebody you can fall back on. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the EMT, you fall back on the paramedic. The paramedics fall back on the, their supervisors. Mm -hmm. that, you know, and then you fall back. Ultimately, you get to the whole all the way down to like the visit line to the physician. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I'm trying to get to. And the physicians, you know, they call the, the specialist or the consult. Yeah. But, um, you know, so I think in the beginning, I was just trying to, to not fail. And then I kind of got excited about, uh, you know, more exciting calls, like car accidents mm -hmm. or heart attacks or something yeah. where there was like an acute medical problem. Mm -hmm. And then after my... Uh, paramedic training, I think the calls that I really was looking for are the ones that push my clinical knowledge mm -hmm. and the person who's unconscious lying in a pool of pee and you're and cold to the touch and you're like are they are they drunk are they having a heart attack are they having a stroke mm -hmm. like I'm going to need to paralyze this person and intubate them mm -hmm. and you're just so it was just like I really like the calls that kind of pushed my clinical mm -hmm. excellence and now I think I like the calls where you're just kind of holding the person's hand mm -hmm. going to the hospital mm -hmm. helping them navigate the healthcare system because mm -hmm. you're you know you've you might be your 10th call that day. You definitely have a, a leg up on uh -huh. terms of the knowledge gap. Mm -hmm. And so helping people navigate to the right hospital, navigate to the right providers, mm -hmm. helping them understand what's going to be happening once you wheel them through the door. Okay, mm -hmm. you're going to talk to the triage nurse. We're going to get you into a room or the most appropriate place for you to be seen. Mm -hmm. We're going to um, and, you know, introduce you to the nurse that's going to be taking care of you, maybe give the story to them yeah. again, just mm -hmm. help them through that whole process yeah. and um, trying to make it and as you know, comfortable for them as possible because people are really scared and really don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Um, and what they do get understand is you know they don't also they don't understand what i was talking before about that amazing clinical medicine you're doing like mm -hmm. they don't understand that but right. they do understand keeping them warm making mm -hmm. them comfortable giving them reassurance mm -hmm. like the little things that are kind of like the the art of medicine rather yeah. than the science absolutely i i mean that that definitely resonates with me as well i mean like i mean on this show we've, we've talked a little bit about my, my personal history as like a you know leukemia patient and so like mm -hmm. a lot of what i remember from those experiences was not even just like the you know the like you know baller bank shot like you know uh chemotherapy regimens that they're like you know that they're prescribing like which takes a, a, an enormous amount of expertise but it's like 
the moments where like the nurses gave me like two warm blankets just to make sure like I was like you know warm or like you know people who just like came up and and um, you know told me what was going on so yeah no I, I, it sounds like that's um, that's very admirable that you that you you find you know the the process of orienting you know patients and kind of comforting them you know rewarding so kind of transitioning a little bit towards you know kind of like the differences between the graduate school that you applied before and medical school is there any anything that's similar between you know maybe like law school paramedic school or even like because you have an mba um, so mba graduate school to i guess a medical school sure so i would say that you know, I was fortunate to be able to do a JD MBA from UConn. Um, they were offering a, a unique program at that time to try and get more JD students into the MBA program and uh, had a lot of financial incentives for that. So uh, I jumped at that. And I think all the training has been a little unique. Law school is, is very heavily focused on um, working as an individual. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I think the culture of, of that is is, you know, uh, great distributions and uh, your first year GPA is the most important thing to getting that mm-hmm. uh, in you know summer job which gets you your job afterwards mm-hmm. and so it's it's kind of very heavily solo and then mm-hmm. um, the MBA program you know everything that you do is small group like wow. every single project is wow. your small group so you're working all year with their small group you better like your small group <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I think that medical school has been a nice little mix of that, mm-hmm. where there's some things you're doing on your own, but otherwise, especially here, where it's everything's pass fail and people mm-hmm. are very willing to work together collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a good mix of working together in teams and then also on your own. Mm-hmm. So I would say that is kind of looking at them, all the different schools, and saying that. Um, I think your 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 experience is really dependent upon where you are, mm-hmm. uh, and that I feel very fortunate that all the schools I've gone to have had a really good culture mm-hmm. with like um, with great people, mm-hmm. and that was kind of how I also chose my law firm that I ended up working at was mm-hmm. it had an incredible culture, a very unique collaborative flat culture where like you could go to any partner mm-hmm. call them by their first name ask them to lunch they would go to lunch with you wow. and you know there wasn't it was not hierarchical at all wow. um, and so after you know going to a graduate school where people were friendly and working at a place where the most important part was who you were working with because mm-hmm. you know when it's 2 a.m. and you've been working for 72 hours straight you, know, you want to be with good people. Yeah. And so when I was trying to find a medical school, I, what I was trying to solve for among you know the locations that we talked about earlier was mm-hmm. a school that had um, kind of a collaborative, friendly culture mm-hmm. associated with it, um, where it was, you know people focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, so far, I think I, I have found that here, and I've been very happy with that. That's wonderful. Um, do you feel like um, you found some, you know, good like sources of support in in this area as well? Then um, w- within the school or within the faculty, like, c- can you kind of, I guess, compare your experiences between like medical school and 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 law school? And you were talking a little bit about that. Yeah. So I I think that there could be more supports in the school. I'm 
you know, I constantly am comparing, contrasting against my experiences. And one thing about the law firm that I worked on is that they were very heavily focused on mentoring as well as wellness. Mm -hmm. And they, there's a lot of, and I know that the school is increasingly focused here on those things as well. And there's a lot of ideas that I could see being brought to this environment as well. Like the firm that I worked at, they had, um, you know, you had a, a structured mentor mm-hmm. and they just gave you money every month where oh, you could wow. go do whatever you want with it. You could oh. go to a baseball game. You oh, could I, go through. I would be okay with that. You <laughs> did like axe throwing, uh-huh. um, you know, go grab a beer, yeah. whatever you wanted to do. And, I, and that was really nice. And then they also had an informal mentoring program where you mm-hmm. could ask anybody, uh, your senior, mm-hmm. to just go get coffee wow. and they would reimburse you for that as well. Yeah. So it was like a kind of, a nice way to, to do your own internal networking that was supported kind of foster a community and so. they and they were really really focused on wellness as well mm-hmm. and they had a lot of professionals people who mm-hmm. did wellness for a living mm-hmm. come in and lead sessions and give ideas and like were really supportive of people who had ideas to improve uh, attorney wellness mm-hmm. um, you know, we have we would have basically retreats focused on on wellness because okay. uh, there's you know obviously a huge burnout culture there as well. Yeah. Um, what were some of those skills or, or like some of those like does anything stand out from like those you know wellness discussions? I think the most important thing is um, what I took away from them was framing because so uh, along the lines of cognitive behavioral therapy is yeah. you you know there's a there's a set of facts. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of ways that you know different people can interpret that same set of facts. Yeah. And you know some per, some people could see uh, a car accident and be absolutely crippled from it and not be able to go outside. And other people can you know see that same car accident and just move on about their day. And you know there's there's not really any difference between those people except kind of how they are processing mm-hmm. that. And so um, you know one of the things that we had a, a video showing here on campus in connection with physician wellness and burnout. And you know, people, one of the physicians who was on the show was felt, feeling really burned out because she had all these people dying in her ICU and it was just so emotionally taxing. And then they had somebody else who came on and said, well, I, you know, I, it is really difficult, but at the same time, like I feel very privileged to have those last moments with those people and be with them when they're struggling and be the care their provider and help them get through it. So it's like the same set of facts, but kind of two different ways of approaching it. And so I think it's important to always kind of maintain that quote unquote perspective mm-hmm. um, and context. And, and that can be really, it can go a long way towards getting through those uh, difficult and stressful times. Yeah, that's very good insight, I think, and definitely transfers well into medicine. Right. And because there's a lot of ways that you can maybe dig yourself a hole and go this downward spiral of, um, I I especially remember when I applied to medical school and I didn't get as many interviews that I expected or, you know, anything else that I expected to get and I didn't get, there would be like, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. Or or even maybe going to exams here in medical school, maybe you didn't get the score that you wanted and you go, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. And trying to have that positive frame set so that you can kind of move on with your life seems to be very helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to get bogged down and thinking like about what other people are gonna think about things. Mm-hmm. And 
um, you know, I, that was one of the things that I had to overcome is like, and really look deep inside. I'm like, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Am I doing them because I want to have the admiration of others because mm -hmm. I want a certain lifestyle? Like what, why am I doing, or am I doing this for myself because it's something that I love and want to do? And, um, you know, that's really why I'm here in medical school because, you know, I, when I was working as attorney, I was going, still going to medical conferences yeah. and I was still working on the ambulance and I was, <laughs> you know, studying and, and reading journal articles mm -hmm. and listening to podcasts. And I was like, <laughs> wait, why am I, I'm like doing all this stuff <laughs> on the I side. <laughs> like, there's like not duh, like, uh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. this is, why don't I just make this my full-time life mm -hmm. instead of like, you know, essentially a hobby. Right. <laughs> it's a hell of a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like my side job is to go to medical school. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just a side hustle. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Um, well, kind of looking a little bit from your transition uh, from your law school to medical school, is there anything that you would particularly do differently or uh, approach a little differently uh, when you do the transition? I would say that, you know, this is a little bit uh, blasphemy to hear, but it really is important, like your grades mm. and your scores mm. to give yourself options and to crack that door open. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought, I thought that I could possibly use my varied background and experiences to mm -hmm. tell a good story. Mm -hmm. But if you can't crack that door to get in to tell the story in the right. first place, then you know, you're going to be out of luck. So I think there's a couple of times mm -hmm. where I was like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go work on the ambulance today. I'm not going to study for the MCAT. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would tell applicants that that MCAT is really important. Mm -hmm. It's important. It's really important. Yeah. And so I know that in all the communities that you talk about, you know, it's holistic application. And you definitely can't just be a numbers person because if they look at your application and, you know, it looks like you just spent the entire time in the library, mm -hmm. then that's, that's also, okay. that's not, also not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> but like, I, I think the biggest thing is to, is to, is to obviously do well on your scores. Mm -hmm. um, and if I go back again, I wish I had, to, I could, could do better mm -hmm. and would put more time in that. And then also just focus on, you know, if you find that one thing outside of school and outside of work that you really care about and focus on that, don't try and do 20 things. Mm -hmm. Be like, focus yeah. on the one thing that you really care about and make a big difference on that. And that I think will pay mm -hmm. um, good dividends. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like don't spread yourself too thin. Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just pick pick one thing and, and throw yourself at that. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think that that'll also translate to other things too, like if it ends up that you don't go out of medical school, mm -hmm. like I think having interviewed people for jobs and everything is like, if I can tell somebody is extremely passionate about something, mm -hmm. that goes a long way mm -hmm. um, because that kind of intrinsic motivation um, is really necessary for some professions like law and healthcare where you there aren't a ton of extrinsic rewards. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of intrinsic motivations of having, you know, looking on paper and seeing somebody who really was devoted to something shows that they have that intrinsic motivation. Right. Makes sense. Um, kind of being driven by like, like, like you were saying, like what, what you're passionate about and what you love rather than like a pat on the head or like, well done, here's a cookie. Like, yeah. Here's $5. I, it would be nice if we got cookies in medical school. We, we get candy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah. I, Actually, this is um, 
this is a bit of a side thing, but it, it's something I, I used to ask a lot of people um, uh, in, in the show I did before. Um, but uh, do you, um, what's something we, you think we can do better in healthcare, um, just given your, your, uh, your varied experiences? Yeah, so um, that's tough. Yeah, there's a lot, yeah. Well, let's pick one. Let's pick one that you would not mind spending your life on. Yeah, if I had a, a, like a, a legion of flying monkeys and yep. control yeah. the world and right. everything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the thing that, that I think is, so I had a, a friend just the other day who was having some lower right quadrant pain and was <laughs> like, I have, like, is, does my appendix need to come out? Right. Like, what is going on? Do I need to go to the hospital? Like, do I need, like, and it's just like, and I just wish we could give her some. And then she was like, well, if I go to the ER, you know, is my, uh, is the ER going to be a network? Is the physician staff in the ER going to be a network? Is the uh, specialist who comes down and sees me, maybe right. the surgeon who I might need? Right. Like, I like you, and you're not going to, like, when you're hurting on your side, right. you're not going to go like, go call your insurance company yeah. up and be like, Which hey. hospital do I go? <laughs> right. Like, and, and. And like not because they'll be like, okay, that hospital's a network, but you don't know that the the, the, the doctors there, there yeah, and all yeah, the people, and yeah. and then afterwards the person gets three bills, uh, and they're like, well, I went to one place, and right. it said the name on the door was this one name, right. and, you know, I thought everybody in there yeah. was that same thing, mm-hmm. um, and I I just wish we could find a way and to simplify that and to not know to not know how much something is going to cost mm-hmm. until like months later when you've reconciled insurance benefits and deductibles and co-pays right. and different mm-hmm. networks and everything like that just yeah. is crazy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, I would, if I could change something, I would try and reduce that administrative burden. And I'm not sure what right. that solution mm-hmm. looks like. There's mm-hmm. plenty of different methods on the table, right, right, but yeah. there's, there's just no reason we should be spending all of our time trying to figure out um, the finance part of it right. when we could be focusing on the care part of it. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Cool. Uh, last question from me would be uh, any comments or advice in regards to future pre-med applicants who might be in law, involved in law, or trying to uh, see if this is the right path? Yeah, so some people have asked me if they think they should get a JD. Um, Before medical school? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, um, you know, do you, th- do you think, would you think it would be helpful if I, you know, after I'm a physician, do you think it would be helpful if I went back and got a JD? Or do you think I should do a JD MD mm-hmm. program? And there was actually a, another student in my law school class who was doing a JD MD. Wow. And he was like the hardest working person yeah. I met. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, and I would say that I always find the knowledge and skills that I learned in law school extremely rewarding because mm-hmm. it teaches you to be comfortable with ambiguity, mm-hmm. which is what we have in medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's not going to always be a right answer or like an answer period. Mm-hmm. And so the law training teaches you ways to get comfortable with ambiguity, to make decisions in the context of ambiguity, and also even tight timing, limited mm-hmm. timing. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes in medicine, we have not only high stakes and, you know, uncertain outcomes and, right. uh, and short time. Mm-hmm. Like, so those things could, so I think legal training taught me a lot about that, but 
I think you can learn that in other ways. Mm -hmm. And so I would say if you're thinking about pursuing a JD, MD, you know, I would only do it if you really think that you're actually going to represent people mm -hmm. because you can learn how to think in other ways than law school. Law school and law school is a big time commitment mm -hmm. and a big financial commitment mm -hmm. and, with and even, you know, opportunity costs and all those things. So unless you're actually going to represent people, which is the only thing that you need, mm -hmm. uh, you know, absolutely need a JD for, mm -hmm. uh, then I wouldn't necessarily pursue a JD. There's a lot of other programs now like LLMs and masters and mm -hmm. um, also ways just of doing medical legal partnerships where you can kind of get that law training and law information mm -hmm. rather than doing JD, MD. <laughs> um, so happy to talk to anybody about that uh, who comes in, but I'm very happy with that that training, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary mm -hmm. if you just want to you know, learn more about legislation and policy making and rules and regulations. You don't need to get a JD to do that. Right. Just gotta read more books, right? <laughs> There's some things, some things you can read books for, and other things you just got to go out and do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just depends on the area. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you for talking to us, Rob. Yeah. Thank you for being on this podcast. Yeah. Thanks. Dave and Sean, I really appreciate you letting me come in today and share yeah. my wisdom. I mean, I really love um, helping others who are on their journey. I think that I am where I am because I had some unbelievable mentors mm -hmm. and people who helped talk to me and helped me make sense of my situation mm -hmm. and gave me opportunities. Thanks so, for um, listening to this part episode. of this that is now giving back to the next wave of support from our listeners. Please right, thank rate, you. review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization. Thank you.